You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Here's Nate. Well, as we approach Ezra chapter 9, we discover that Ezra and his return to Jerusalem, along with three to 5,000 men, women, and children, uh, led to some major changes in the nation of Israel. Ezra really stirred things up. The presence of this passionate scribe and priest with his Bible in his hand and his Bible inside of his heart began to affect and influence an entire nation. And one of the things that initially came out and was exposed was the reality that the Israelites who had been living in Jerusalem had wrongfully married uh, daughters of the pagan nations around them, something that God had forbidden them from actually doing. And Ezra's presence as a righteous man, full of integrity, but full of God's word, revealed this sinful reality. We read of it in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So some of the leaders come to Ezra, some of the officials, it tells us there in verse 1, and they have an announcement for Ezra. Hey, well, you've been gone, and, and before you came back to Jerusalem, during this period that we've lived here and existed here, a practice has become commonplace. And the practice is that of the men of Israel marrying these pagan women. And this was of massive concern amongst the people of Israel. Now, it's important, I think, to notice or to note that uh, the separation that they were desiring wasn't simply a racial separation, but a spiritual separation. Notice there in verse 1 that they are concerned about the abominations of these different people groups. And of course, when the people of Israel had gone into the promised land, God had warned them, Exodus 34, verse 10 through 16, to make sure that when they went into the promised land, that they did not intermarry with the nations in the promised land, lest these marriages become a snare to them, leading them to the worship of false pagan gods. You see, the truth of the matter is that it is always more difficult to pull someone up than it is to pull someone down. If you were to stand on top of a ladder and hold someone's hand down below, it would be much easier for them to yank you down to the ground than it would be for you to pull them up to the top 
of that ladder. And so the Lord, understanding that reality in a spiritual sense, urged the people, do not intermarry with people who worship uh, these pagan gods and practice abominations because if you do, then in general, they will pull you down to their level and soon their idolatry will infect the entire nation. And now, apparently, as the years have gone by and as the people are beginning to repopulate the land, there was a segment of the population who considered this kind of sin no big deal. And so uh, they basically were guilty of committing the sin of living a non-consecrated life. And they were beginning to give in to the pagan practices around them as a result of these intermarriages. And as we saw, of course, in the life of Solomon in a previous generation, even Solomon, the, the wise man of the earth, the, the man that God gave his wisdom to, who expanded the borders in Israel, even T Solomon in all of his glory was brought low by his affiliation with the foreign gods of all of the wives and the concubines that he had accumulated over time. So this wasn't a racial problem, but a spiritual problem amongst the people of Israel. And they come to Ezra and say, listen, things are off and we need your help. And this is a beautiful request from these people because it illustrates an understanding that they had. And the understanding is very simple. We can have all of the external appearances of worship, but if our lives are not consecrated, it is all for naught. I mean, you can have the temple flowing and the sacrificial system, but without living a true life of obedience for the Lord, what good is it? And so these people understood uh, that reality. God had said in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And uh, so the Lord, he wants obedience. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God has told you, O man, what is good and what the, does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And part of that humble walk with God is to submit to his word. And part of his word for these people especially was that of making sure that they did not intermarry with the nations uh, around them. Now, as, as soon as I heard this, verse 3, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Now, uh, uh, Ezra does a couple of things in response. First of all, he tears his garment. Now, this is a uh, normal Old Testament response to distress or to grief. Uh, this was uh, really his way of expressing uh, that his mind even has been torn. His insides have been torn. His heart has been crushed. I mean, you have to imagine what this would have been like for Ezra to have lived in Babylon for the entirety of his life, to have studied the word of God and to have dreamt 
of living in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, to be around the temple, to be able to worship God and offer sacrifices and have a nation that operated as a theocracy, responding to the leadership of God for the nation, that, that when there were questions morally in the nation, that when there were you know disputes about what was right or what was wrong, they would not look within, but they would look up to God and to his word and find their definitions from scripture itself. And for Ezra to have traveled all of those miles and to have his heart broken by the sad spiritual state of the people, it must have crushed Ezra's heart. And so he tears his garment and his cloak. And also, verse 3, he pulled his hair from his head and beard and sat appalled. Now, in that era, when someone was mourning, they would shave their heads from time to time. And this was Ezra's way, I think, of saying, I don't even have time to go and find a razor to appropriately shave my head or to shave my beard. I'm going to pull it out of my hair, my head and pull it out from my beard. And it was his way of declaring that his grief was so intensely strong. Now, the thing that's so interesting here in another sense is that when Nehemiah years later found the same types of sin amongst the people of Israel, he didn't pull out his own hair, but he pulled out the hair of the offenders, just two different types of men with two different types of personality. But Ezra publicly grieved before the people. And notice there in verse 4 that in response to his public grief, everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and gathered around Ezra until the time of the evening sacrifice, which could have been at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so you have this silent gathering of mourners and objectors, those who are grieving the spiritual uh, depression amongst the nation of Israel. And at that evening, verse 5, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And so here, Ezra begins to pray a public prayer. I think he'd been praying the entire time privately and silently, but here his prayer, which has now been formulized in his heart, expresses itself publicly before the people, saying, verse 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is this day. And so uh, Ezra leaves his moment of silence, kneels down, stretches out his arms, and begins to cry and pray aloud. And I love the first line out of his mouth. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, 
my God. It's interesting that the sin of others caused Ezra personal embarrassment. He wasn't guilty of this sin in particular, but he was embarrassed for God's people and wept in embarrassment and shame before uh, the God of heaven. And this prayer, of course, in, you know, identifying himself with the sin of the people is very much like others who were, you know, ministering around his era. Daniel, who had ministered years before Ezra, had done the same thing when he learned through reading the book of Jeremiah that the people of God would be in captivity in Babylon for a period of 70 years. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel read that prophecy from Jeremiah near the tail end of those 70 years, Daniel began to weep and he began to identify with the sin of the people that they'd not let the land rest for 490 years. And so he identified with the sin of his forefathers some 500 plus years previous. Nehemiah does the same thing when he's there in uh, the capital city and his brother Hanani comes tr and has traveled all the way from uh, Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks, what's the state of affairs in Jerusalem? And his brother tells him, listen, the walls are broken. The gates are broken, burnt with fire. And Nehemiah begins to weep. And he, as he wept before the Lord, he identified himself with the sin of the people. And I think a good, strong leader, someone who wants to see the Lord move in power on this earth, will identify themselves with the people of God and will, you know, have this ability to confess their sin and the sin of the people before uh, the Lord. But I love Ezra and his ability to blush before uh, the Lord. And he just announces to God, we're in a sad state. You know, he says, listen, we've been in great guilt and we're, you know, we've suffered uh, by the hands of kings and swords and captivity and plundering and shame. This is not as it ought to be amongst God's people. You have given us over to this discipline. But now he prays in verse eight for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. So Ezra here confesses to the Lord, Lord, this is a moment of grace. Just the fact that this remnant even exists we could have been wiped off the face of the map because of our disobedience. We so have broken your covenant. But here we are. Just the fact that we even exist is a sign of your incredible grace upon our lives. You have left us as a remnant to have a secure hold, a, a nail or a peg inside of this place to give us perhaps a little reviving a little brightening of the eyes, a little, a little, you know, reprieve from our slavery. For verse nine, we are slaves. I love Ezra. He calls it like it is. He says, "Listen, this is the sad state. We were to be the great nation. We were to be the nation that drove out 
these other nations. We were to be the nation that was an illustration for the entire world of righteousness and holiness and purity, that we were a nation that was holding the holy scriptures, divine revelation. But what we are instead is we are slaves. Yet our God, verse 9, has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Samaria. He says, listen, God, you've been so good and have given us a reprieve long enough to be able to rebuild your house. And what are we going to do with that great freedom and blessing that you have given to us? And now, O oh God, verse 10, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Ezra made no excuses for the nation. He says, listen, we've broken your commandments, which you, verse 11, commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that, I, that have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children uh, forever. Here Ezra was just so saddened by the reality that the people of God had neglected uh, the word of God. And, you know, here we have Ezra going back into the time where the people initially went into the promised land back in the days of Joshua. And, you know, he recounts, listen, God, when we came here, you warned us not to intermarry with them so that we might be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to our children uh, forever. God had specifically forbidden these intermarriages. Now, in the New Testament era, uh, the problems of interfaith marriage were recognized by Christians as, just as they had been by the Jews. I mean, Paul condemned marriages with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Uh, widows who were going to remarry were ex explicitly advised to make sure that they married believers who were within the faith. And so that warning was repeated in the New Testament era. And here what we find is that God doesn't give a whole lot of reasons as to these prohibitions. I mean, he, he we, we see a little bit of the reasoning for it, but he really doesn't give a full explanation of the wisdom that is embedded within his command. That's not of our concern. Our concern is to be obedient to the Lord. Someone I respect greatly, a pastor, made the statement that if God were to attach every form of the wisdom that, that could be attached to his commands, we would need a dump truck to carry our Bibles around because there would be so many instances where God's word, the wisdom of it would play out in that particular situation. But here it's so easy to see. If you have parents who have come from two polar opposite 
belief systems and spectrums, uh, then you know you're going to be bound for difficulty. If you have a person that you're supposed to have deeper intimacy and fellowship with than any other person on earth, yet you can't even talk to them about Jesus, then what kind of depth and intimacy will you really have? There's great wisdom in the word of God. But Ezra continues his prayer and says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And with that, Ezra's prayer was complete. Really, in one sense, there was no request. It was just confession before the Lord. Now, what happens next is fascinating in chapter 10. In verse 1, it says that, well, Ezra prayed and made confession weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. There was something that attracted the people of God to Ezra. He was a very real man, and his depth of walk with God the reality of his mourning and his weeping, his passion for the Lord was attractive to these people. His example and his attitude basically lit the fire of revival in the nation of Israel. And so this huge heart from Ezra led to a great movement of God here on earth. And so as they're gathering, a man named Shechaniah, verse 2, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra. He said, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. This is so wonderful that Jeconiah steps forward because he's announcing hope for the nation. He still believes that even though all of these great sins have been committed amongst Israel, he has a firm belief that God is able to still revive the nation and that the very reason that they haven't been wiped off the face of the earth at this point is because God is not finished. And I love this. What Ezra was doing uh, somehow in his morning gave people a glimmer of the hope that was still theirs as God's covenantal people. And I think so often modern versions of quote-unquote mourning are so negative and so legalistic and so so doomsdayish that the listener concludes that there is no hope for them. But here there was hope. We can walk with the Lord. We can return once again to the Lord, just as our forefathers time and time again rebelled, but then returned and God embraced and accepted them. So can we be accepted as well. Therefore, verse 3, Shechaniah continues, Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. 
So Shechaniah wants to uh, restore the covenant with God. God was in covenant relationship with them, but they wanted to renew it. They wanted to say, yes, God, we want to be a part of your covenantal plan uh, here on earth. And so they make that declaration. And here's what he proposes. He says, you know, let's take care of and put away all these wives and their children. All right. So he's proposing basically the divorce of pagan wives from any Jewish man who had taken a uh, non-Jewish pagan wife uh, to be their bride. And then he says in verse four, arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had, as had been said. So they took the oath. And so they want Ezra to oversee this difficult task of oversight, basically, of divorcing uh, the people divorcing their pagan uh, brides. Now, part of the reason, perhaps, that it was such an involved process and not just a commission that went out to all of the land, but was such an involved process was because there was the possibility in the Old Testament era for conversion to take place. And if conversion had occurred, legitimate turning to the God of Israel, then that intermarriage was acceptable. And so maybe Ezra's duty and commission was to find out, have any of these women embraced the God of Israel? Then Ezra, verse 6, withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And so again, he continues to weep. He sleeps on it. And a proclamation, verse 7, was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders and all his property, should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So in other words, there needs to be no delay. You have to quickly obey this reality and come to us. Then all, verse 9, the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And so again, the separation was required from these pagan women. Then all the assembly, verse 12, answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. 
and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And so there they are, drenched in the rain, a huge thunderstorm. It's cold. It's December. And as the rain is pouring, Ezra speaks to them and says, you need to get this right with God. Divorce yourselves from these pagan women. And they respond and said, that's true. We must do as you've said. They were moved by the word of God. But they eventually then said, listen, it's a big job. We've really bound ourselves up in sin. We have tangled ourselves up in it, and it will take us a while to become disentangled. So let the officials in every town be the ones who help that judgment take place. Perhaps the judgment of whether or not these women had really come to know the Lord or not. And so they give Ezra this proposal. Let's delegate this to the various towns and regions. Only Jonathan, verse 15, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshullam, and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. So you have four men who oppose, for some reason, perhaps because of personal guilt, this dealing with the problem. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. They just dealt with it. Now, it's important for us to understand that in the New Testament era, if a person finds themselves married to a non-believer, Paul the Apostle makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that they need to stay in their marriage to that non-believer, that this is now God's will for their lives. If the non-believer departs, that's one thing, but the believer should never be the one who departs or deserts that marriage. And there's been a debate over Ezra in his decision here. Were, was this a case of trying to have two wrongs to make one right? And perhaps that's the case. But Ezra seems to be a man who knew God's word and initiated with zeal this separation and holiness for God's people. Now, verse 18, there were some, uh, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. And then you have this list of priests who pledged themselves, verse 19, to put away their wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Among these sons, some of them were even related to the Joshua that we studied about, the priest that we studied about earlier in the book of Ezra. And so some of the priests and Levites, verse 23, and just the men of Israel down into verse 25 had verse 44 all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children it's estimated that it this was about 0.4 percent of the entire population at the time that had intermarried within uh you know outside of the nation and so there was just this dealing with sin and the book ends with this list and it ends abruptly and I think what it shows us is that, yes, the worship of God needs to be dealt with, but the people of God, our obedience must be dealt with as well. And we are so thankful for men and women like Ezra, who over 
the history of God's people have been willing to stand up and say, this is wrong. Let us do what is right. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.